Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Conversational. My name is Julie Rehm, and today I have the very great pleasure of introducing you to Jack Myers, who is not just my guest, but a longtime friend. Um, we were just speaking. I know that um, we early 2000s is when we met, but uh, Jack has done lots of amazing things in his life, one of which was uh, starting a, a company called Media Village, and um, I wrote blogs for it way back in the day. And um, he was reminding me that in 2011 was my first one. And it was entitled, Do You Like Me and Should I Care? Well, I really care if Jack Myers likes me because he is, he is, he is such a great guy. I'm going to give you just a little bit about who Jack is and why I'm such so effusive about him. So he um, was born in Utica, New York, but beyond being a New Yorker, he has established himself as one of the really great, um, I would say, proponents of women in marketing and in media. So he, he got his start in, in media in the early days. I'll let him tell you all about it. But along the way, he has built his own companies. He has supported women in every walk of the media and marketing world. And um, he has let his principles really guide everything that he, he does. Um, I, so I want to get into this with, with you now, because I think that, um, I think that it's your, your story is one that is super inspiring. And as we talk about these holy shit moments that get in our way um, and can sometimes get us off track, it is those things that sometimes lead us, lead us to who we were really meant to be. And I think for sure, that is what has happened um, with you. So, first of all, welcome. Um, but second Thank of you, all, Julie. I have to tell you, uh, you know, you 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 hark back to the 2011, 2012 when you were writing for Media Village, and and do you like me? Yes, I truly like you. <laughs> Always have. I, I remember the first time we met. You were giving a talk at an at an ANA or an IAB or a conference, and it was on uh, why media buying would move toward technology, and it was pre-programmatic. And and everyone's in the room naysaying, and I'm in the back typing away every word you were saying, which I I found incredibly brilliant, and I've liked you from that moment. And you were right. That's the that's the uh, interesting thing. You were uh, you you like. You know, your whole career has been going a little against the the tides, um, which I've always respected. Always. Well, and you, you know what, it's actually such a nice segue because you were always a supporter of mine all the way through. And, you know, I was never one to not be controversial, um, you know, especially in that. I remember that where I suggested that the way we buy and sell TV um, should be done in the same way that we do that, you know, we buy and sell, you know, on the NASDAQ. And uh, boy, I got a lot of, especially the from the media agencies, um, I got a lot of dirty looks on that one. But you were always super agnostic and just to your point, supportive of the new thinking and more than just the new thinking, I, I really, you really always have been a very big cheerleader for women, um, for women in this space and for women in, in what were traditionally male dominated spaces. Um, I, it, and it's, so I admire you in a, in a big way, but let's go back. Let's, Let's tell them all about you and why 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 I'm so few. So let's get let's get into it. Because so you were born in Utica, 
I know that in New York. Um, yeah, and it's in central New York. It was uh, when I when my first, oh, I'd say 14, 15 years, Utica was known as Sin City. Uh, it, it was uh, the first, uh, Utica Club was the first brewery to open up after Prohibition, primarily because it had never closed. Uh, Utica was part of the pipeline of uh, Hooch down from Canada and out into Detroit and down into New York City. And so there was a, a large uh, mafia contingent there. And then when I was a fifth, about 15, they had a reform mayor who came in and changed it to Sincerity City. So I missed out on all the fun, unfortunately. Oh my gosh, uh, who knew? Who knew that that was? <laughs> I like I, you kind of think of Utica as sleepy. I was like, you know, it's just yeah, it, it's yeah there was a time when it wasn't so sleepy. <laughs> so tell me about your mom and dad. So what, what did your dad do? My dad was college administrator. Uh, also, uh, early in uh, his career was in PR and then moved that into uh, college administration, uh, Utica College, which was part of Syracuse University. Uh, my mom uh, who's been, who just passed uh, a couple of months ago at 99 years old, was, uh, was incredibly inspirational. And I really didn't uh, get to truly appreciate what her, her work. She was one of the only working women in my neighborhood. Uh, she uh, was a bookkeeper, uh, put herself through college, night school, working full time, going to classes three nights a week, homework the rest of the time summa cum laude graduate, went on to get her master's. Uh, when my parents, um, when I went to college, they moved down to Texas and my mom went to work as a civilian for the military. Uh, and this goes back into the very, very early days of computers and, and became uh, the, the Air Force's leading uh, computer programming troubleshooter uh, globally for um, all the PXs and commissaries, all the uh, commercial uh, assets that the, that the Air Force operated. So my mom spent uh, time working at the Pentagon. She traveled to, to Air Force bases around the world. And I remember one, one day she came home and she was, uh, said, I'll tell you, this colonel keeps bothering me, I, you know, and he keeps, he keeps, overruling me and I just walked right into the general's office and I told him <laughs> and I said mom you walked into the general's office and she said, yeah you know and and so she was a very uh forceful woman powerful woman a role model she was part of uh even in Utica as, as a bookkeeper was part of uh Governor Rockefeller's first council on women uh, after she passed. I found, actually it was just before she did, I found some documents uh, that, that were from that. She wrote her master's thesis on, uh, on, on uh, if you read her master's thesis today, you change a couple of words, a couple of the terms, and it would be like, she, like it could have been written yesterday. Um, is just so far ahead of the curve on so many things. Uh, so, and my dad was just incredibly supportive of her career. Uh, when he retired and, and she continued working, she, uh, he just, uh, you know, really supported her travel and, and uh, every step of the way. I never felt any 
when she was a working mom and, and a working wife, uh, when none of their, you know, friends or, or uh, neighbors were had working women in, in the household, I never felt any any defensiveness about that. In fact, you know, I just felt like he was just incredibly supportive of that. And it it's only recently that I've I've come to recognize how influential they both were. And you know, my, I've, I've written a couple books on gender norms, and, and it's something that is so evolutionary. I'll tell you, can I tell you a little unrelated to that story yeah. about Utica? Absolutely. Okay, so Utica uh, was the home of General Electric radios, where they were built. I was a, a senior in, in it's 1965. I'm a senior in high school, and I get called into the office and told that GE is having what they know, what they call a focus group. And they've asked for two students, uh, male and female, to go spend, go spend a few hours. So they, you know, took me down to the GE plant, which is now closed up and in ruins, um, and, and showed us into a room. There were two kids from each of the high school. There were around uh, 10 or 12 kids there. And we spent three hours talking about something brand new called transistor radios. <laughs> no kidding. Again, this was a radical idea. And they had six samples, you know, two of each to pass around. Some were, you know, pretty big, had handles on them, leather cases, really beautiful. Uh, and then others were were these, you know, got smaller and smaller. And there was this little red one, this little teeny red transistor radio. And then at the end of the focus group, they asked us all to just put in a, you know, pick out which one we want, put it on a piece of paper and put it in and they'd pull out and whichever one, uh, you know, they pulled out, you, you'd get first come, first serve. And every single kid put in the little red teeniest transistor radio. This was radically different than what GE thought would be the result of the focus group. They thought everyone would want the pretty big box with the handle that you could carry around that looked nice. And it, and that was the beginning of those little red transistor radios that you saw ubiquitously in, in the late, in the 1960s and throughout the 70s. I, I had one, I, I had one. It was my first radio, those little ones that had that like little string that your wrist could go through. Yeah, and um, a little yeah. antenna that you lifted yeah. up, yeah. Oh God, yeah, that's amazing. You know, so it's, it's so funny because I, so I wanted to, it, so one of the things that I thought when you know just knowing you that we discussed was sort of a hope i don't know if it was a hoshimo it was a, it was but it was a it was kind of ever present you know and but i think it helped make you who you are and it's that speaks so much to kind of your i think your support for women you were just talking about your mom and i kept thinking about the movie hidden figures and how we could there's probably a series of movies of influential women um you know, in our government military you know development she was probably one of those. I know you told me the story about how she got her accounting degree, but wasn't allowed to get her CPA because only men yeah. were allowed to have them then. But you exactly. also mentioned, yeah, you also mentioned that, you know, and it, it was very difficult time and having a, a really formidable presence and a, and a very, um, you know, 
you know, very, a mom who was very into her career and ambitious was not the norm. And certainly um, when you were growing up was not, not at all. It was supposed to be, you know, June Cleaver was the, was the idyllic, you know, mother at the time. That was how the world looked, but. Yeah, my ideal mom was Donna Reed, but. Donna so. Reed. Okay. Got it. Fine. Not to clear Donna Reed. Fair enough. Yeah, but, I wanted to be Paul Peterson. That's, that's <laughs> another generation though. <laughs> uh, also, that's okay. You give something for people to look up, right? When, but how was it growing up? I mean, because it was so different, I'm sure that it changed your perspective and made you who you are today. But what did it feel like as a kid growing up with a mom who was very focused on her career? It sucked. So, it, it, I, I, you know, I have very clear memories of my mom just being, uh, first of all, not being home. Uh, coming home for dinner, uh, you know, one hour and then leaving again for, for, uh, for school or moving into the other room to do her homework. And if I wanted to be around her when she was doing her homework, asking my dad to, you know, come and get me, um, it was really difficult. It was incredibly formative uh, to, uh, you know, to feel not wanted, frankly. Um, and, and I, and that helped, that really was very formative and, and, relationships that I had later in life, uh, you know, kind of looking for those same qualities that were really destructive to um, my own uh, self-image, self-esteem, or, or needs, personal needs. Um, as, as fortunately for me and, and for her, she had a very long life. And as I got to go through therapy, number one, um, go through relationships and come to terms with how powerful a positive influence both she and my dad were by being so different and by being able to be comfortable in their differences, both in their own relationship and, and in the society that they lived in at the time. And my mom, I asked her just a few years ago, as, as the harassment issues and Me Too uh, movement uh, evolved, how she managed and navigated in the military for all those years. And she said she recalled no overt harassment. Mm -hmm. that she was always taken in and accepted as part of the, the club, um, that she was supported, apart from that one colonel maybe, um, but uh, that she was always supported, always reinforced, and never felt that she was judged by anything other than her her skills and her talent. Um, and and that that's uh, that that was a powerful message. I think we we don't necessarily always look at the military in, in that context. So it, it was really uh, it was challenging as a child. And you know, I think today there you know we're we're we're, we're really in COVID-19, in the pandemic, we're, we're seeing the, the extraordinary challenges of, of working um, and, and being a, a working parent and, and having children whose needs are significantly more without the, the support infrastructure of the school system or camps or the after-school programs or before-school programs, the child care. Uh, none of which she had. Yeah, it's I. It is amazing to hear that she doesn't recall any stories because you do. Amazing. Assumption is, of course, that we all. 
you know, I think about my career as a woman in a lot of male dominated industries, and I don't recall any overt necessarily, you know, sexual harassment, but certainly, I guess people could have, but certainly, certainly the way that people spoke to you, how they referred to you, what they expected of you, you know, certainly was not what you would expect today. And, you know, it's funny in how we look back, I would never have thought of myself. I think it's just as, as you go through when, when that, what, what is the norm is the norm until your a light is shown on that, that really shouldn't be. It's sometimes you just take it, you just accept it, take it for granted. But I'm glad to hear that she really, even after the light was shone on, on all of this, that she, she couldn't think of anything. I mean, that's a great, that's yeah. a great testimony. Yeah. It's great. So I want to go back to now over to you as a kid, because you've got this amazing story of, uh, and it connects to that transistor radio story you were telling about, um, you know, growing up. And it makes sense too, that without your mom there, you were probably left to your own devices a lot. So you built a radio. At what age did you build a radio and why did you build a radio? A, a crystal, a, what's called a crystal radio. At nine years old, uh, I had a neighbor who was a disc jockey. Um, what they, they didn't call them disc, he was a radio announcer who played music and talked. And every Saturday morning, he did the show live during the summer from his, his carport. Um, and uh, I'd go over and, and visit with him and uh, got to talk on the radio a little bit, but more importantly, watch him. And I just became fascinated with radio. So I built one. Um, and that crystal radio, you strung a, a wire up into a, a tree and it, it was able to pick up AM signals from New York City so I could listen late at night uh, when there were um, clouds in the amp, you know, the AM, which bounces kind of off the clouds and you know, whereas FM is kind of a straight line and have limited distance, AM can go on forever. So I'd listen to KDKA from uh, Pittsburgh and uh, I think WDAF maybe from Detroit, uh, WABC from New York, and I'd listen to rock and roll radio. And um, it was just, it was, you know, just, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a disc jockey. I wanted to be in radio. I wanted, which is why they asked me to go down and do the GE. They knew, you know, even in high school, they knew about my passion. Uh, I applied to uh, the, uh, what was then, you know, Syracuse University. It was, it was the communication school, but it was before it was the Newhouse School. It became the Newhouse School when I was there. Um, and um, I just, that's all I wanted to do. I got my what's known as a third degree FCC license to be a disc jockey. You had to have a license from the FCC. So uh, my dad had to drive me out to Syracuse twice to take the FCC test because I failed the first time. <laughs> so very upsetting. And uh, but I, I got my third degree license, but I never got that job as a DJ. When I got to Syracuse, I did a public affairs show on the, uh, an interview show with the Maxwell School of Citizenship Professors, which all politics also fascinated me. So I had a minor in political science and I'm still fascinated by politics. And, um, my, but my, I'll tell you, the most important education that I ever got, Julie, was my master's at NYU in media ecology. It, it was mm -hmm. the most formative uh, experience in my life and continues to inform everything I do. I, I proudly wear the title of being a media ecologist. And, and I think 
I think I'm the leading practicing media ecologist, and, and there are actually hundreds of them around the world. Um, I didn't know that there were. I mean, it's it is interesting to think about your trajectory. I thought, you know, I know. So you've got these parents. This is why I love doing these these conversations because there's so much richness when you think about your parents and you think about your love of radio and how that stuck with you. Plus, you know, you were living in this town. I think you told me you were one of two Jews in a town of Catholics, and so you were a high school of twelve hundred. There were two Jews. Yeah, yeah right. Ninety five percent Italian Catholic. Yep. And then two, right, so you were always sort of this outlier, like this mom, you know, this, and, and you, and, but you had this passion that you found because you just put yourself, this is how I envision, you know, if I was going to write your story for, you know, a, a TV script, right? You, 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 you found this niche and you, you just pursued it relentlessly and you worked for the GE and then you came to New York and you worked for ad agencies and, you know, that, but you always had this political bent. And even in your interviews, I mean, I think about what, when you started Media Village in 2011, it wasn't so much political, but you, you took them on the way that you would think about interviewing, you know, candidates. I just, you always had that very, you know, Thank you. process or no, it's a, it is absolutely a compliment. It, it's really, truly amazing. How did you, so when you came, I want to tell people, cause just cause I know the story, I want that you to tell it, but you came to New York, as you said, and you, but you worked for, I think you worked for JWT, didn't you, for a while? Well, no, what, what I, uh, I can't, I worked for a year in Syracuse. The university uh, had uh, had a profit-making company called Civic Survey that was a research uh, company. I went there for a year uh, while I waited for my uh, then fiance to graduate, now ex-wife. Um, but uh, that was, it got me into the kind of the advertising slash uh, research business. And then I came down to New York and, and it was the beginning of a recessionary period. Uh, I was looking for a job. I knew no one. You know how, how important it is to have relationships to help you get jobs, especially then in the advertising media business. And I, I wanted to work at, at CBS, ABC in the radio or television business. And I couldn't get a job. Uh, I had an interview at Prentice Hall uh, to be a copywriter for direct response advertising. They offered me the job. Uh, and, and I remember they're saying the average person here has been here over 40 years. And when you retire, now again, remember I'm 21, 22 years old. When you retire, you'll be a millionaire. <laughs> and I'm looking around the room, I could not get out of there fast enough, even though it was the only job I'd been offered. And a few weeks later, I saw an ad for uh, an account executive at a radio television company. Uh, an account executive to me was like an AE at an ad agency. Um, and at the same time, there was an opening at J. Walter Thompson for a copywriter. Ah, I did both interviews. I got the job at JWT working on the Ford account. Mm -hmm. Scheduled to be to start on Monday. I get a call on Friday. A freeze has been put on all hires. Oh my God! You, so Don't we're not hiring. And so I called back the. Uh, interviewer, the personnel agency for the AE job, and I show up and it's, they say, well, this is a, a radio TV company called Metro Media, but 
uh, which own WNEW, AM and FM, and WNEW TV, TV stations, uh, it became it evolved into, you know, who knows what. Uh, but they own an out a company called Metro Media Outdoor, Foster and Clyde, which owns bus advertising rights in cities around the country. And this is a job as a salesperson for bus advertising. <laughs> my brain went, oh my God, I don't, I don't, I can't sell. I don't know how to sell. Um, the last thing I want to do is be a salesman. And the last thing I want to sell is bus advertising. The words that came out of my mouth were, I really think bus advertising is an incredibly untapped opportunity for especially local, you know, local advertisers who need to have, you know, the bus on the street going past their businesses. That happened to be exactly what they were looking for in New York City. So I'm going to go out and sell in Queens and Brooklyn and Staten Island. And then they said, well, you know, how would you approach? I said, well, first of all, I see so many billboards and and bus ads that have too much type. You want to get a really bold message out there that's really clear and a call to action. And they said, all right, we're setting up the interview. I got the job. Uh, it was three years there. I thought it was a dead end and, and I wanted to move on. Of course, I was working next to a guy named Billy Apfelbaum, uh, who I'm still friends with today. And, and Billy went on to make millions of dollars in the auto home business, by, you know, owning the franchises. Uh, but I, it was incredibly formative because you had to go out and sell with no tools, no research, no data. The only thing you had was your own creativity, your own ideas and your own uh, inspiration. And um, I, I happened to have a couple of bosses uh, who were really smart in, in the, and, and taught me how to sell. And, and I went on. Uh, one of the things that I, of course, noted that there were no radio stations using bus advertising. So, of course, I started calling on all the radio stations after a little bit and brought them in. And I got fortunate to be hired by... ABC radio to, to sell for them. And, and that led me to CBS television where I, uh, what I, which I really consider to have been the, the foundation of the career since then. I was there at CBS TV seven years and, and uh, they, were, uh, they were an extraordinarily uh, entrepreneurial company at a time when there was no entrepreneurialism in our industry. Well, you were, and that entrepreneurialism, I think, didn't, didn't you, before going to um, CBS and uh, ABC, didn't you start to do a, your own startup in there? <laughs> in the middle there. You're <laughs> you, you've done your homework, Julia. Hey, that's what I do, right? <laughs> because I think that that's uh, the holy shit moment, right? You left yeah. it. Like that's super important in your story. Well, as I said, I, I thought that bus advertising was kind of a dead end, and um, I was a Rolling Stone reader, and I read that Rolling Stone had decided to grow old with their audience. So I said, well, if they're going to grow old with their audience, who's going to fill that niche? Uh, so I I left uh, Metro Media after developing a, a magazine, a tabloid magazine called. Tambourine, Rolling Stone was a, a, a Bob Dylan song, like a Rolling Stone. So I took Tambourine, another Bob Dylan song. I hate Mr. Tambourine Man. And I uh, 
I, I did, I spent a little over a year. I spent all of our savings uh, that my wife and I had put away uh, and uh, just was not a particularly good businessman, even though I put out a really good product. We put out four issues, um, had an incredible team of people who are legendary uh, in, in many ways, uh, working editorially and graphic design. And, uh, and it was uh, basically for uh, late high school, early college years, and we had distribution models. We, we actually did pretty well, but had no idea how to run a business. And uh, I still struggle with that. Well, I see, I wanted you to talk about it because obviously you did, you did start your own business and it did do quite well. So it was, you know, we all start somewhere, but the fact that you did that and it didn't work, didn't. Uh, and, and yeah, and the right? point that you make is that my first, my, one of my biggest clients was WABC Right. Uh, radio and and ultimately I, I got hired by ABC radio to get, get into radio so you're exactly right and uh, WCBS FM was a client uh, of tambourine and that you know that that built relationships there so it was it was the beginning of my relationships across the industry uh, I do remember uh, that in college my goal was to be uh, president of CBS television uh, so when I got to T CBS, I, I had very high aspirations for myself. Well, but you were right. So, I mean, and look, I think that that's why some people could see that as a failure, but without that tambourine, the ABC and CBS might not have happened. So CBS Thank is you, really Julie. great. I feel so much better. I'm, I'm in fact going to make sure, you know, that my, my, my ex-wife listens, so she'll see that spending all of our savings was not for naught. It is not for not. Look at you wouldn't have done. You wouldn't have gone on to do the things you've done. You wouldn't have helped all the people. These things are these are necessary. Thank you. It's true. It's true. Everything, everything comes together. And you know, I have the advantage at this point of being able to look back and see so many things that, in in the aggregation, contribute to everything that I'm doing today and and have done and and have built at Media Village. Uh, that does, you know, not just go back to that moment at GE and to my mom's experiences and my dad's, but uh, to those formative experiences. And, and I will, uh, I'll share with you that at CBS, it was really extraordinary. I was the most junior person on the Channel 2 New York sales team, uh, selling to retailers out in the boroughs. And my, my boss got promoted opening that job. And it was a, a job that was, it was a training ground for more senior sales management. And I'd only been there six months and I went into, um, you know, the person who was doing the hiring to, to replace my, my boss say, to say, I'm really concerned that you've got this retail sales effort and someone's gonna go in there who has no passion or, or commitment to it. So you know, I'm just sharing with you my concern. I know it's premature for me to pitch the job. It, this is a holy shit moment for sure. Um, and and he, his name is Mike DiGennaro. And Mike said, well, why, uh, why is it too early for you to pitch the job? I pitched the job. I got the job. My first hire was a complete out-of-the-box hire, a woman at the time named Arlene Kekulis, then Arlene Manos, 
who went on to become, uh, you know, very well known as, as head of sales and chief revenue officer at AMC Networks, years at head of sales at, at A&E Networks. And while she was at A&E Networks, Mike DiGennaro uh, was out of work and she hired Mike. See? Yes, the connection system. You know, Wait, there, the nexus. It is it's so important. I mean, that is why these, like, these interconnectivities, people... This is why I like you. I don't want people to think that just because it doesn't go the way you think that then all is lost. These are so important when you look back because they thread along. I think your bravery though, I wanted to go on one more with the bravery. I thought you were going to tell the story, not just about pitching the job, but about how you then brought up to CBS the fact that you thought cable um, might be a threat <laughs> and how they reacted to that. Well, see, it was interesting at CBS because we're, we're talking in the late 70s, early 80s, I, I, because of my success at Channel 2 in the role of retail sales manager, I was promoted to head retail sales for what, the five owned and operated stations, which TV stations, and um, did well there. And then I was promoted into a role as head of marketing uh, for CBS TV stations. And marketing then basically meant marketing services. And I decided that there was a vacuum. No one was looking at, at the stations group at the impact of new media technology on revenues, on, on ad, advertising revenues. And CBS was very invested in something called teletext and videotext using that little black line that for those of us old enough to remember the TV screen that flipped, there was a black line, you know, as it flipped. And that was, you could program in there. So, and that's where you know things like um when when you see you know the um you know simul casting of the of of the words that are being spoken uh superimposed feed in there and they were very focused on that but cable was it was a they wanted cable to die at CBS. And I became a big advocate of cable. I said this is a place where we should really be investing. We should we should go out to all of our affiliates. We should buy up rights to, to the local news, uh, to provide the local news on cable. And CBS told me, uh, if I like cable so effing much, maybe I should go work for effing cable. Uh, <laughs> cable, CBS had a cable network they were launching, but I, I saw they were driving that. It was called, you know, CBS Cable was Cultural Channel, and they spent ridiculous amounts of money to make sure it failed. Um, so, you know, I, I, I basically uh, left and went to a cable network called UTV that I spent two years at. It was probably the best job I ever had in terms of opportunity, but it was at a time when it became very difficult to launch a new cable network. And I, I went and started uh, what has become the Myers Report, uh, which is uh, a, a, a research business to basically explore the implications of new technologies on uh, advertising, the advertising business, and specifically the ad sales side of the business, and to develop uh, research to share with back to the networks and to advertisers, to agencies about the impact of technology on their business models. And, and that has evolved and ultimately led to uh, much of the work I'm doing now to look at 
not just the technology, but the, the, the impact of technology on media, but also on culture and uh, society. And that's part of the media ecology, which is the past, present, future of media impact on culture and society and business and the impact of culture, society, and business on media. Um, so that's kind of evolved into what is Media Village today, which, which feeds off of the founder of Media Ecology, who was Marshall McClune. Um, and my schooling at NYU was uh, Neil Postman, who was the uh, men mentee of Marshall McClune and, and one of the founders of Media Ecology. Yeah, it was it's a one piece of irony I thought in there was that after, you know, CBS told you to pound sand for cable and go there that you started, you know, Myers report, but CBS hired you back to consult for them on how <laughs> to make cable better. I thought that was super ironic. Yeah, right? It was it was two years later. And uh, they they yeah, they were they were really they were my third client. ESPN was my first client. Uh, ABC uh, had a something called um, uh, the Arts Channel, uh, which merged with the NBCU's The Entertainment Channel to become A&E. Uh, and then CBS became and, and has been, all three of them have been uh, clients or, or members uh, ever since. Um, and, and it's uh, been a great partnership with them and with so many other of the media companies in the industry. Yeah, which is, and as it should be, right? It, people, it comes around. All right, so I've got final, I want a final story, and then I want to culminate with your, with your book and, and what you do, because this kind of gets to your support of women and education and diversity. So, you know, within, so the Myers Report we talked about, and then you founded Media Village, which is still thriving today, but, you know, it, and you've, you've always shone a light on how poorly, you know, added media businesses do really in education and diversity in particular, which is why having, having somebody like yourself be a cheerleader for women, those of us in this industry has been um, just such a, a, such a blessing, but you really dedicated your career to it. And, and yeah. I want to, I want you to talk about that, but then I want you to tell the story about your board and yeah. how you, you kind it of all ties together. together. Thanks, Julie. Yeah, um, so, um, you know, part, again, going back to media ecology and understanding the culture and researching the, the cultural realities and also economic realities. And it, it, as I was studying the impact of technology on media and advertising, it became obvious that the growth that media is a is a stagnant industry. Uh, the economics are very share-based. There's very little organic growth. So the only way you win is taking share from someone else. Marketing uh, budgets have, have been growing in the below the line. Uh, the realities were not, uh, were the accurate forecasts a decade, uh, you know, a decade, a decade and a half ago were that, media would be struggling with the advent of digital. And as I looked at the dynamics of what are the pillars of uh, growth for those companies and in, in, in categories outside of technology and finance, what are the pillars of growth? And there were two common pillars. Uh, one is an investment in education, both internally and for your external stakeholders. And two, uh, was new majority investments in new majority talent. 
And, you know, 10, 12 years ago, new majority talent became very obvious that women would, we would become, industry would become very female centric. 60% of college students, uh, graduates female, 60% of high school graduates female. Incredible, you know, the females just emerging. And it became obvious and to me that the media industry had to do better in, in gender, changing the gender norms. And so in 2011, I founded an organization called, at the time, Women in Media Mentoring Initiative. It evolved to womenadvancing.org with a focus on recognizing the value of young women coming into the industry and accelerating their growth by connecting them up with senior women, not to be mentored alone, but to also be mentors themselves to more senior people because they had skills, knowledge, especially technology oriented and, and culturally uh, changing cultural norms. And that organization continues. We continue to host now virtual events, but at Media Village, you have the womenadvancing.org platform where we highlight uh, women. And then the, out of that evolved an understanding of youth in general and the, the emergence of what we now know as Gen Z. So I began studying them, uh, wrote a book called Hooked Up, a New Generation Surprising Take on Sex, Politics, and Changing the World, focused on changing gender norms, but more importantly, the emergence of this generation and um, and that led, because I kept getting asked, well, what's happening to the men? Why aren't men performing? And, and to get answers, I, re I did research and found there was no research. So I did extensive research on, on masculinity and wrote a book called The Future of Men, uh, published okay. in 2016, uh, just before the election, thinking we were going to have a little different world. But I forecast, I forecast a backlash, a male dominated, uh, angry backlash uh, against uh, the women's movement, which, which I think culturally we're, we're seeing manifest itself, not just in a backlash against uh, changing gender norms, but changing cultural norms and changing multicultural norms. So in 2017, I, I founded advancingdiversity.org. And I can announce with you today, Julie, that uh, Phil McKenzie, uh, a, a diversity and inclusion leader for, um, you know, for a couple of decades, uh, uh, founder of his own multicultural agency, uh, graduate of Howard University, is joining us as a, uh, executive director of advancingdiversity.org, and, and I'm really proud he'll be joining us uh, in, in a week as uh, to lead our initiatives, uh, which are really industry-leading, and supporting those organizations that are actually making a difference and, and are not getting sufficient financial support from our industry in, in, in advancing women into more senior positions of leadership, assuring that we have pay equality and that we're measuring it and that we have not only gender diversity, multicultural diversity, but welcome veterans and welcome all those underserved communities that have been excluded uh, media and advertising continue to be at the low end of the industrial spectrum on investments in uh, advancing diversity, investments in education, investments in 
content marketing and communications. Uh, so at Media Village, our goal is to really lead the industry in, in advancing education and diversity. I and, and that, again, is another great host, you know, and I, I know we're towards the end of time here, but I, the, that 2017, that startup, and what you've just done and what you've mentioned with, 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 with Bill and with is that would not have happened had you not stood for your principles with your board. Well. So, so thank company. you. You're going to make me tell that story. I'm happy to tell it. Yeah, it because it's, it's painful. It's painful. In 26, in 2016, I hired a, you know, I was told that in order to have a, a liquidity event and exit in the company, I needed to cede responsibility and bring in a management team. So I did. Um, and I brought in a new president who, who uh, basically uh, did not agree with our investments in diversity initiatives and advancingdiversity.org, women advancing. And uh, he kind of went against me in, in setting his goals for the company. Uh, and we basically went to the board and I presented my case and he presented his case uh, and the board backed him. Uh, and, and said they did not think it was an appropriate way to build a company toward exit by investing in either education or diversity, that they were dead ends, there were no funding for it, and there was no egg, natural exit for it. And uh, so I basically disengaged myself from all day-to-day -day management and funded those initiatives individually. Um, and... Um, and now yeah. where you are today, uh, education and diverse and, and two years later, I came, I basically pushed that whole management team out because they were not achieving their goals, took over, elevated education and diversity back into the primary position, but maintained all of our core capabilities around the Myers report research, our content marketing, uh, tools and built but built it all under the umbrella of in education, market intelligence, and advancing diversity uh, through through talent development. Uh, it's it's all integrated and and I welcome your. Uh, I know you have a very large audience and and a lot of friends who like you, Julie. Uh, <laughs> uh, listen um, to just explore Media Village and we just launched MeetingPrep.com. Uh, which is the, uh, the only uh, AI-based search engine for media marketing and advertising. It's in beta right now, and, me, and, and it's at Media Village, meetingprep.com. And this is why I love you, because you, your principles are so strong, and it's the company you founded, and you pitched this very important thing against the grain, again, which you... You you support in all of us, but you 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 hold yourself to the standard, and you walked away for a year and came back and made it better. But you didn't waste that time away while you were gone. You did the Advancing Women Project, and now that is leading in a time where it is it is so needed, but it's also now at least being embraced. And so you know your pioneering, I, it is. I'm so grateful, and I know wow. others are for what you've done to to build this, to lead this and to just continue to drive it in the face of, you know, so much adversity. So I want to thank you on behalf of all of us women in the no. marketing and advertising no. space for what you have done for us and just congratulate you on such a spectacular, spectacular life, really. Thanks. And, and I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't mention my wife, Rhonda Carnegie, 
because I, I talked earlier about spending all my, my savings to create tambourine. And uh, during that period, I, I spent a lot of our savings to maintain and build the diversity initiatives. And, and Rhonda, who's a force in and of herself, having helped build the TED brand, uh, ha has just been such a, an inspirational and, and supportive partner that uh, we are uh, we are a team in what we do, and um, you know, being uh, being con being so forcefully in support of of strong women, I think certainly paid dividends in in being able to attract a, a wife as strong and powerful as as Rhonda is. It's a you you um you have good you've got you float in good company, my friend. Yes, Rhonda is an amazing woman. I. I I'll have to follow up with you and see if she's be interested in being a guest too. I'm sure her backstory is amazing. So we are towards the end. Thank you so much for being so generous with your stories, letting me pull out these stories from your past. I know that they, they are making a difference for people who listen. And um, thank you again for all that you do and, and for, for being my guest today. Thank you, Julie, for all you do. And so for such a fun time with you, my God, this was great. And I'm, I don't usually... Uh, have the opportunity to tell the stories, um, and and I hope I didn't uh, overwhelm uh, your audience with uh, too many of them. I don't think so. I think they're going to love it. This is this is why this is why people listen in. So thank you again. Good to talk with you, and uh, thank you again for everything you you you've done in your career and your leadership. Oh, thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>